As you are sitting down, you can feel free to open up your Bible to the book of Colossians, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. That's where we're going to spend our time this morning. If you don't have a Bible, don't own a Bible, you can find one in the back of the pew in front of you. Uh, We'd love for you to take that home today with you. That'd be a gift from us to you. If you're unfamiliar with how to use the Bible, you can find a table of contents at the very front of it. It's going to let you know where the different books are found and then as we talk today, the large numbers are going to be chapters, and the small numbers are going to be verses. This morning we're in Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Man, it is good to be back uh, with some of y'all anyway. Uh, no, there's some of you who just aren't here. You're traveling, and so it's good to be back here with you today. Zach and I had a, a great trip. Zach got back last night late but he's sitting here in the second row, and so if he nods off, let's just be quiet and walk out, okay? And so, man, it was a great trip. Look forward to sharing with you all that the Lord did there in uh, Uganda, and so it was uh, just amazing to see our brothers and sisters uh, working hard to expand the gospel globally and to work with them in that endeavor. Uh, This morning, we're in Colossians 1, 1, and 2. Let's read the word of the Lord together. The Apostle Paul writes and says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Now, as we were on this trip and and we were headed over, uh, we had a couple of longer flights, and if you've ever flown on one of these longer flights, and so, you know, nine hours and, and above, there are a couple of things that you just really hope for. Uh, probably the, the, the first thing that you really hope for is an empty seat beside you. And when you don't see the empty seat beside you, you begin to hope a couple of things about the person who happens to be sitting in the seat that's going to be beside you for the next nine hours or so. And, and kind of depending on where you come down, you're, you're probably hoping, don't let them be chatty. Don't let them be chatty. Don't let them be nine hours worth of chatty, right? Let them be just kind of, hey, how are you? You can have a gospel conversation with them. But what you don't want is nine hours of, you know, tell me all about you. That, nobody can handle that. Nobody can handle that. And so when you, when you sit there, you, you want to know a little bit about them, and they want to know a little bit about you, and so you begin to have these conversations. Now, one of the guys who had been on this trip with us uh, said that when he was taking a trip recently, he sat down, and, and he had kind of exchanged pleasantries, and they kind of established, this is what I believe, and this is what you believe, and at some point, he noticed the conversation wasn't really going anywhere anymore, and so he got had his screen, and you have this unlimited, it seems like, supply of movies to choose from, most of which you don't want to watch. And so you're there, and you're picking favorites and all these things. So he gets it all set up. He's got his earbuds in, and he is, like, happily watching the film. You know, it's just like, this is great. I can watch, like, four movies. And he's just there. And then all of a sudden, in his peripheral, he begins to see this. And this. And this, and he said, and then all of a sudden, his face is like right here beside him. And he realizes, oh my goodness, she's watching my movie. And he looks over and like, hers isn't working. So she bailed on her, she's watching his, he's like, whatever, you know, there's, there's no subtitles, and, and you're fine to do that. And then all of a sudden, he realizes, she goes, and she begins to tap on his earbud. So he's like, what? And she's like, can I have that? And he says, no, you can't have my, 
no, you can't have my earbud. Man, there are certain things you want to know about the people you fly by and certain things they want to know about you. But as we come to this text that Paul opens up, he lets us know that when we have a clear understanding of whose we are, Christian, when you have a clear understanding of whose you are, it profoundly changes who you are. Look at the way Paul addresses this to this this group. He says, when you know whose you are, it profoundly changes who we are. Now, a little bit of background. Paul, as he writes this, is in prison, and, and we kind of begin to draw together the idea that he's likely in prison in Rome. If you turn to chapter 4 and verse 3, he makes it clear to us that he's in prison. He says, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. So Paul is in prison on the basis that he is standing for the gospel. And Paul is writing this letter to this church in Colossae. And, and likely with it, the letter that went to Philemon. And so he's writing this letter to do a couple of different things. One, to encourage them. You notice as you read through the letter that Paul wants to encourage them. He wants to bolster their faith. He wants them to be found to be strong in their faith. So it's not just this letter solely of kind of condemnation of what's wrong with you? Why can't you get this right? But it's a letter of encouragement. It's a letter also directing and encouraging them not to fall back into who they once were. These are people who were once enemies or once alien uh, to Christ who are far off from him and opposed to the gospel. And Paul wants to make sure they don't return to that. And so he's, he's contending earnestly that they not return to who they once were. And I think we have a sense of that in our hearts, right? We have this sense at which in our hearts there's this idea of who we used to be. And it's contending against, it's arguing against who we now are in the gospel. And Paul wants to encourage them not to return to who they once were. And then thirdly, there's this idea of kind of external forces at work in the church, broadly labeled as heresy, as non-orthodox teaching, as teaching which argues against and not for either the exclusivity of Jesus and salvation in his name or something additional to that, something additional to our faith. And so the, the two external forces primarily at work in this church in Colossae that Paul addresses are the idea of legalism, that there are certain things that you need to do for God to be pleased with you. And then if you don't do these things, then God is not pleased with you and your salvation is in jeopardy. And I think some of us, our backgrounds and some of us, our tendency and the people around us, they call us to, to love that. They call us to let that be your experience, to let that be what you walk out, right? You need to do these things in, in essence to please God, in an effort to please God. And then there's the idea of ritualism. Not just that you need to do these things, but you need to do these things this particular way. That your understanding of who God is, of how he's operating within your heart is skewed, is, is incorrect. But if you would do them this particular way, then God would be pleased with you. So it's not necessarily just in doing the concrete things, but it's in doing them in a particular manner, a particular fashion. And I think we'll see this over the next 20 or so weeks that we have to journey through this letter that, that Paul wrote to the church in Colossae together. Well, let's begin to kind of dig out this idea uh, of whose we are and, and who we are. Look at what Paul writes. He says that he is Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. Now, maybe this is your first time in church or you've not been in church very long, 
And so you're rather curious about what in the world is this idea of an apostle? Well, an apostle, simply put, is one who is sent out to communicate a message. They're sent out to communicate a message. Now, uh, the idea of a New Testament apostle is, is someone who is witness to the risen Christ. And so Paul is witness to Jesus after his resurrection. He encountered him on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. And in that moment, God put his special hand of favor and designation upon Paul, and he sent him out to be a herald, to be a communicator for the gospel. Now all of us, right, all of us are tasked with communicating the gospel. All of us are tasked with sharing the gospel but Paul has this special designation of being an apostle. Let's just take a peek at this. Flip over to Acts chapter 9. Flip over to Acts chapter 9. Now, Paul was not uh, a friend of Christians prior to coming to faith in Jesus. Paul was a persecutor of the church. And in fact, he was headed to Damascus to place under arrest to bring back to Jerusalem for greater punishment uh, those who were actively practicing Christianity. And it was in the midst of this travel, in the midst of this trip, that God interrupted him in the person of Jesus. In fact, Jesus says to him in verse 5, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. So Jesus occupies uh, his people. But look at what it says of Paul and kind of of the manner of life that he would live. Back down in verse 15 and 16. God gives an instruction to Ananias that he's to go and to communicate to Paul. And this is what he says of Paul. He is a chosen instrument of mine. Stop right there. God owns Paul. He owns his life. He owns his intensity. He owns his direction, his present, and his future. He says he is an instrument of mine for what purpose? To carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Paul is a chosen herald of the gospel meant to carry forth the name of Jesus. And he's going to do this in a number of different ways. And at the time of the writing of this letter, he's doing this from uh, prison. Look at what he says. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And when you read through 2 Corinthians and you read through all of Paul's letters, you begin to get a, a picture, you begin to get a window into just how much he suffers for the name of Christ. But there might have been those who received this who thought right, Paul is, is, is kind of self-made and self-appointed. So look what he does. He says, I am this by the will of God. Now what is this communicating? This invites those in Colossae and it invites us today to say that there is some purpose, there is some reason that God has you here. Understand this. That within the providence of God, within the manifold wisdom of God, that he has you in your neighborhood, that he has you in your place of employment, that he has you perhaps in your particular friend group. He's established the patterns that you work, the patterns that you engage in the community for the express purpose of radically engaging the people you come across. God desires to use you as an emissary, a herald for the gospel, Everywhere you go, whether you are on spring break or you're staying at home and you're having a staycation. Paul wants them to understand that it is the will of God, that it is God's, God's providential decree that has established Paul as an apostle, which leads them to ask the question, what has God established for me to do? Who has God established for me to reach? How has God established for me to be? 
Paul says it is all, in essence, by the will of God. And Paul has along with him as a travel companion, Timothy, his disciple. And look what they say, and our brother. Paul begins to expand their horizon of fraternal engagement, right? He begins to expand their understanding of, of what is family and who is family. Maybe if Paul wrote them, they had this understanding that, that family is mom and dad and sister and brother and, and, and daughter and child and maybe extended cousin. But Paul wants them to understand that Timothy, that Paul, that they are fellow brothers one together. Now, what's the purpose of this? What's the purpose of this? The purpose for them and the purpose for us is that we would see our familial entanglement one with another. Simply put, that we are family, right? It's so incredibly important to recognize that we're family. And that the head of our family, the head of our family is God the Father, the creator God over the entire universe. He is our Father. And we are brothers and sisters, one to another, which directs our engagement, which tempers our attitudes, which changes how we speak to one another. We are not disposable uh, towards one another, but we are radically united in one family under God's fatherhood. Amen? This is what he has made us to be. Now look how he begins to expand it in verse 2. This is how he describes them. He says, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Now let's, let's expose these a little bit more. Paul is there under the direction of Christ. Christ is the Messiah, Psalm 2, Isaiah 53. He's the suffering servant. And then they are there in Colossae, and they are saints. Look at Colossians 1.13. Look at Colossians 1.13. He says, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Now, I think the English word saints conveys within it an understanding that Paul isn't seeking to bring to bear on our lives. There's the understanding of, of sainthood that leads us in this understanding of, I, 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 I just, I have nothing in common with them, right? There's this understanding falsely within the understanding of, of sainthood that I just, I don't understand them. They're, they're just holier than thou. I have no ability to rightly relate to them. And so we see within this a, a level that we're never going to attain, an engagement that we're never going to have. And so when we read through and we see words like saints, we just wonder, man, how close is this to my own experience? And how close could this be to some future version of myself? But this isn't what Paul's trying to communicate. This isn't what he's trying to communicate. What he's looking at in this idea of holiness and sainthood is more the idea that they have been set apart. That they have been set apart, that God's favor rested upon them, and on the basis solely of God's favor resting upon them, they have been set apart and designated unto his tasks. Now, why is this important? If, fundamentally, you and I see sainthood and holiness as something I can achieve and engender on my own, we're setting ourselves up for abject failure and incredible disappointment. We're setting ourselves up for this idea that I need to work harder, I need to do more, I need to be more faithful. And if that's what you're constantly caught up with, when I need to do more, I need to be more faithful, I need to be, change these certain habits in my life, then you're placing uh, this idea of, of, of holiness as something that you can affect primarily on your own. 
And this isn't what he wants to communicate to them. This is what those in Colossae desire for them to come to an understanding of. But this isn't what God would have them to do. He says they are saints, and then he says you are faithful brothers. You're faithful brothers. Look at the call that he gives them in chapter 2 and verse 6. He says, therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Notice what he does there. That he doesn't just give them some abstract understanding that you should go out and do this, or even a concrete understanding, go out and do these particular things. But instead what he tells them is to walk in what? Walk in Christ. The Christian life can find us being set apart and can find us being faithful, but it never finds us doing those things in our own ability. It is debilitating. It is overwhelming when we put these things on our brothers and sisters in Christ or when we allow someone or ourselves to put them on us. It's debilitating. Because we come to this understanding that, that we have this picture of what it is to be set apart and what it is to be uh, faithful and these idealized pictures of it, and we constantly look at these through the lens of our current experience, which, which recognizes our failure. It says, oh, I remember Monday at breakfast. Oh, I remember Tuesday at lunchtime. Oh, I remember Thursday afternoon. And we're chronicling all the various failures we've gone through. When we got cut off in traffic and we thought, when we woke up in the morning and somebody asked us a question we weren't yet ready to, uh, to address, something like good morning, and we just snapped at them. They should have known better. It's not good morning yet. It's hmm. Which the only, only, only uh, solution to that is coffee. Amen? Amen. Praise God. Hallelujah. Let's have a good day. And so when we look at these things and we come to this understanding, and some of us, this is the way we were raised, and some of us, this is how we live now. We are so incredibly disappointed at our failures and we feel we feel in our failures as we are receiving the displeasure of God is this not the experience that many of us encounter is this not the God that many of us here told about and talked about within our community a God who who lavishes his displeasure on people at every time they fail as Paul says before them and he addresses them as saints and faithful brothers and sisters. But look at what he ties it to. Paul ties it to their location in Christ. And it's in Christ that we're set apart. And it's in Christ that we are faithful. It's in Christ that we're set apart and in Christ that we're faithful. But Paul wants them to understand that they're caught in the middle of these two things. Now, the ESV renders this to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, but the way the Greek sets this up is it separates the idea of from being in Colossae to being in Christ. And why is it doing that? Because it wants it, uh, the, Paul wants us to understand, he wanted them to understand that we're caught in the middle of this existence, that we live in Greenville in Christ. We live in Greenville in Christ. We live in Hunt County and in Christ. We live in Texas and in Christ. We live in the world and in Christ. And so we're maintaining this tension. This is the thing uh, that Peter addressed when he wrote to those in 1 Peter 1. He says, Peter, an apostle of Christ Jesus, to those what? To those who are elect exiles in the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And then he tells them, it's according to the foreknowledge of God. God has placed you here. He has placed you now. 
So we come to this understanding that even where we live now, you live in Hunt County, you live in Texas, you live in the United States of America, you live in the Western Hemisphere. In all of these various places, they're making demands of us. They're making uh, calls upon our lives, saying you need to be this way, you need to engage this, you need to work at this level, we value education, we value hard work, we value honesty, and all these various things, and some of them good. He says, don't find your identity in them. Don't find your worth in them. Don't find your value in them. Don't find your heart in them. Because when you do, you are moving against the gospel that says you are primarily in Christ. And you can be in Christ no matter where you live. And you can be in Christ no matter where you go. And it's foremost, finding ourselves being in Christ that establishes us safe and secure in all the various places we go and all the various things that we do. Now, Paul recognized over the many of his letters that this was a decidedly important facet of Christian understanding that they had to come to terms with. That the understanding that they are in Christ has to be at the forefront, at the center of their understanding of who they are. If you see your identity as being in Christ, as being something uh, that you can just kind of cast off or something you don't have to give careful consideration of, you will find yourself chasing your identity in your work. You will find yourself chasing your identity in your family. You will find yourself chasing your identity in the opinions of others. And all of these things come to weigh on us. All of these things are a burden to us. So Paul calls to us and he says, you need to understand first and foremost who you are in Christ. Paul, writing to the church in Rome, said these words in chapter 8, verses 38 and 39, speaking of the love of God. He says, For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nothing now and nothing to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God and where is the love of God experienced in Christ Jesus our Lord. Today, where you sit, you can experience the profound love of God in the person of Jesus. Amen? And today, where you sit, God delights and he desires for you to experience his love in the person of Jesus. Now listen, it's not in your faithfulness. It's not in your personal holiness. It's in his faithfulness and his holiness which he has entrusted to you, which he has established you have because you are in him. Now, being found in Christ overcomes heresy. Being found in Christ overcomes heresy. Because when we engage it and we are told that you need to believe this or you need to do this this way, we run this through, does this accord with what Scripture says I am to do? Does this accord with what Scripture says I am? Does this seek to make me more a part of Christ by me doing certain things or being a certain way? And finding myself in Christ doesn't see me uh, worried, doesn't see me attacked, doesn't see me being moved by heresy as it's introduced to my life. Because I'm grounded in Christ. Think about difficulties you encounter. You have sickness in your family. You have sickness... Uh, in a friendship close to you, you have some significant disappointment in your life. 
If you have founded your identity in those things, if you founded it in your family, if you have founded it in your work, you've set your hope and your promise on some vision of your future that doesn't come to be, then you can find this crushing disappointment being translated into disappointment in God. God, I feel that I deserve this. God, I certainly worked harder than so-and-so. God, did I not pray that this would be the outcome, but you've not given me that thing that I prayed for? When we find our identity to Christ tethered into some possible outcome of the future and not in who he is, we'll find ourselves driven, we'll find ourselves tossed to and fro. Christian, find yourself in him. The world wants you to find yourself in your failures, It'll tell you that your failures are opportunities to learn from your mistakes, and in learning from your mistakes, you grow in wisdom. Christian, fundamentally, you grow in wisdom by growing in Christ. Not learning the lessons of your mistakes, but growing in Christ, who uses your mistakes to refine your heart. Be found in Him. Be found in Him. This is, this is a message that, that we should spend each and every day recentering our hearts on and, and recentering our focus on. This is a message that will see us stand against attack, that we are found in Him. Not found in our church attachment. If this church were to go away tomorrow and you were still found to be in Jesus, you would be perfectly fine. If this church were to disappear tomorrow and you're found to still be in Jesus, there's still a hope for this community, amen? Listen. If this church is destroyed and does not stand and all of the staff take a different job and we all move away and we shutter the doors and it's burned to the ground, if you're in Jesus, you're fine. We have to believe this. This is the hope for us. This is the hope for our community. We're not bringing them into a church. We're bringing them into a relationship and an investment with a God of the universe who wants to be found in them and wants them to be found in him. In Christ we stand have to be found in him can't be found in a denomination we can't be found in a family we can't be found in a church we have to only ever be found in him zach and i had an opportunity to meet these two brothers uh, these two christian brothers when we were over there who happened to find that we were having this conference in in uh, moyo uganda and this isn't where they started they're not ugandan they're somali and so in Somalia, these two men had come to faith in Jesus. They had both gone to prison. One of them, his wife turned him in, and he went to prison. The other one had his family taken from him while he was in prison. They both experienced terrific physical beating while they were in prison. One had repeated injections that they decided that this would erase his memory of ever having come to Christ. And as we sat and talked to these brothers who had been released from prison, who had to flee the country, who only recently, within a couple of weeks, had been found in Uganda by Somalians, who had beaten them again, as we stood with them, one of the most humbling things I've ever experienced was these guys coming over, not saying would you pray for us, but these guys coming over and praying for us. And praying for our ministry. And praying for our church. And praying for our fruitfulness. 
We'd had opportunities to pray for them, to pray that they might stand strong, but they took repeated opportunities to pray for us. It's only being found in him that allows you to endure that. It's only being found in him that allows you to grow past that. Their security, their trust, their hope wasn't in a removal of oppression. It wasn't even in just finding peace and staying in Uganda. The whole reason they were there was to get trained and to go back to their country so they could share the gospel with more men and women, men and women who, when they come to faith, there's an almost 100% chance they're going to suffer, they're going to be persecuted, they're going to be beaten, potentially they're going to be thrown in prison. But because they're found in him, it wasn't a choice. Because they're found in him, it wasn't an option. Where are you found? Who is directing your life? Who is directing your heart? Are you found in him? Do you have a sense of that when you experience the setbacks of life? Do you have a sense of that when you experience the disappointments in life? Do you have a sense of that when desperately you're on your knees crying your eyes out that you can be made whole and satisfied in him? He holds this truth out to you and invites you to come in to know him invites you to receive him. He says to these saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, he prays for them, grace and peace. Now this isn't Paul's just kind of trite extension that he submits to them. This is the idea that the creator God of the universe, look who this grace and peace comes from. God our Father, we are brothers we are sons and daughters of the king. We are brothers and sisters one to another. And the creator God of the universe extends to us through the prayer of Paul grace and peace. Paul describes grace in Romans chapter 3 in verse 24. He says that we are justified by his grace as a gift. God has made you and established you right and righteous before God as a gift. Man, it's not something you earned. You didn't get your life good enough for God to give this to you. He graciously extends it to you. And how is this gift given to you? How are these riches poured out on you? They are done this through the redemption that God has ransomed you, that he has won you back through Christ Jesus. God's grace finds us in the person of Christ Jesus. Amen. And Paul's prayer is that the Christians in Colossae, and my prayer for us today is that we would experience God's grace, that we would be set free as we live lives of those who have received God's lavish bestowment, his gift of grace in and on our lives. And then he tells them, he couples, he appends to this, this idea of peace. He says, I want you to receive grace from God the Father. I want you to receive peace. When we come to this understanding in 121, in Colossians 121, this is who we were. He says, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. We were not simply people who were just kind of morally neutral. 
is God looks down on creation. He doesn't view creation and say, you're, you're just kind of morally neutral. You're just kind of right in the middle. You're neither good nor bad. He looks down at all of creation, according to Genesis, that we have rebelled, that we have fallen, that we have sinned against a holy God. And he says, you are alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Paul in Ephesians 2 refers to us, and he says, we were dead in our sins and our trespasses in which we once walked that we were dead, that our hearts did not beat for the Lord, that we weren't moving towards goodness, that we weren't moving towards Him. But what has He done? He says in chapter 1 and verse 20 of the book of Colossians, speaking of Jesus, he says, and through Him, He has reconciled to Himself all things, whether on heaven or on earth. How? Making peace by the blood of His cross. It took the blood of Jesus to bring us peace. It took the cross of Calvary to bring us peace. The wrath of God destined for us, headed towards us on the basis of our failure, on the basis of our sin. Your sin and my sin. But we have received forgiveness. We have received the peace of God through the blood of Jesus who took on the wrath of God. And this is the good news of the gospel. Not that God came in and said to us, I'm just going to dismiss all your sin. I'm going to give you a blank slate. And you just go on to do the best you can, buddy. But God has awarded to us righteousness. He has bestowed upon us grace. He has given to us his peace. And he has done this through the blood of Jesus. When we begin to understand whose we are, we are owned by God the Father. We are made to be his sons and daughters through the blood of the, of the cross of his son Jesus. When we begin to understand whose we are, it profoundly changes our identity and our understanding of who we are. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your goodness, for an opportunity to study your word together. God, I pray that we would be encouraged, that we would be set free. God, I pray that you would establish the truth of your word in our hearts. That we would not feel as if we are working to accomplish your good pleasure. God, that we would not feel like we are working to receive your peace. But your son did the only good work necessary. He came and he lived a sinless life. He died guiltless upon a cross, taking upon him all of our sins, our wrongdoing, a pride in our heart, our sins past, present, and future. He took those upon himself. And you beckon us to come in to know you and to be set free. And so God, my prayer for those in this hearing who do not know your son Jesus is that they would know him, that they would fall at the foot of his cross, and that they would cry out for forgiveness, desiring to know you and to follow you. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters in here. 
God, that they've not purposed to find their identity in something else, but they have, that you would set them free, that they would find their identity in your Son. They would find their security in your Son. Both now and forevermore. And we submit these things to you in your Son's name. Amen. Amen.